All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. All right. Hey, everybody. Great episode for you today. Uh, but this one, we're going to do it a little bit differently. So today I'm going to turn over the reins to my partner in crime on the campaign, uh, Chantel Wilkinson. And going forward, we're going to start sharing uh, hosting responsibilities. You know, she'll host an episode here and there. I'll host an episode here and there. And then hopefully that way we can push out more episodes to you on a regular basis. And at the same time, we can bring Chantel's fresh perspective into the mix and, you know, shake things up a little bit. Uh, so with that, here is Chantel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. You probably guessed it. I'm not your usual host, Mike Kapowski. My name is Chantel Wilkinson, and I'm the National Campaign Coordinator of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. A little bit about me before coming to the campaign. I worked in the New York State Senate where I analyzed housing policy. And while in upstate New York, I also participated in the Breathing Lights campaign. It was a multi-city art installation initiative to shed light on the issue of blight in the capital region of New York State. And the art installation, it brought so much attention to the area. It sparked a lot of collaboration between artists and policymakers and people in the community, um, community organizations as well, to bring about solutions in that area. And through my experiences and also having been brought up in low-income housing, I know that housing is truly linked to all aspects of life that we care about, and it drives my passion for equitable housing policy. But enough about me. Today's episode, I'll be speaking to Peggy Bailey. She is the Vice President for Housing Policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. The Center is a founder and steering committee member of the campaign. And today we're going to spend some time in this episode talking about the work we're doing through the Opportunity Starts at Home Racial Equity Working Group. This group was established in February of this year, and we work to advance racial equity within the campaign. But before we get into all that, I'd like to welcome Peggy to the podcast. Hey, Peggy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chantel. Thanks for having me. 
It's really the morning. So the, the, the first question that I have for you is, is literally tell the audience about yourself and why you get up in the morning to do the work that you do. Great. Well, as I said, I really appreciate being here today. And I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1999 to come and do good work. I didn't have a policy area that I was particularly interested in. I just knew that I wanted my work to align with my values and wanted to see uh, and figured that DC was the place to make good things happen. I had worked at the state level a little bit and at the local level a little bit. And uh, while the, the work that those folks do is fantastic, I knew for me, I needed to uh, uh, DC was where I wanted to be. And uh, I worked early in my career. I started in healthcare policy and then had the good fortune to move to working at the National Alliance to End Homelessness, where I really found what uh, the place that I thought I could do the most good and bringing in my healthcare background uh, back then, which was about 15 years ago, was before we were using saying, you know, housing is healthcare, and everyone understood the foundation that housing plays in healthcare. I got to be on the ground floor of that movement and have uh, been able to carry forward that work through the Affordable Care Act and the expansion of Medicaid, and now into the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Uh, what gets me up every day to do this work is you know, how I grew up. I was born in Ohio, but grew up in Texas. Um, I lived the first two and a half years of my life in a low-income housing project in Dallas. And that, but when I was two and a half, that's when we moved out to the suburbs, which where we moved couldn't even been considered a suburb at the time. But a grant program through the uh, that was established due to the Fair Housing Act of 1968 allowed my parents to afford a house out of the city in a place that now is, when you look at opportunity maps, is green, is a place where uh, people can thrive. And it's also a place that's majority black. Um, and where, but where, I, if, if we had stayed where I, um, where we lived when I was an infant, that place is red on opportunity maps and my life could have been drastically different. And that is what drives me every day is understanding that by the grace of God go I and, um, and knowing the opportunities that government programs had in my life to help me be where I am today. Yeah, I mean, that's so many things. I mean, coming here for to just to, to do good work and also just connecting all those intersections that you just did just really shows, I think, something that we often say is that Unfortunately, our zip codes dictate our opportunities in life. And and really, because that's such a reality, it's so unfortunate. And I think, again, you just kind of like pointed out just in your experiences and what you, why you do what you do, what gets you up in the morning. It really just shows that intersection, which is really a lot of what the campaign is about. Um, and so before we get into the racial equity conversation, I do um, want the audience to know a bit more about the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which, again, has been just the partner with the campaign from the very beginning, really helping the campaign establish its foundation. So can you tell us a bit about the center and your role within it? Sure. So the center is a nonpartisan policy think tank located in Washington, D.C., although we do have staff um, that are spread out throughout the country. We do work both at the federal level and at the state level 
trying to help policymakers and the general public understand the role that budget and tax decisions make in all of our lives and often pointing out the inequities that exist, particularly within our country's tax policy, both at the state and federal levels. But in addition to that, though, our, our mission is to protect the safety net programs for people with low and moderately low incomes. And that means that we also work in the healthcare sector, particularly on Medicaid and making sure to protect Medicaid coverage for people with low incomes. We work on food stamp program. We work on uh, welfare and TANF and cash support programs. And I head up our housing, affordable housing work, which primarily focuses on housing subsidies and the voucher program, understanding that people with low incomes, particularly those with extremely low incomes, are more likely to be renters um, by and large. And therefore, we need to help people at the lowest incomes afford their rent. In addition to that, I also oversee our Connecting the Dots project, which is headed up by our director, Jenny Sullivan. And that, that project looks at the intersections of housing, health, criminal justice, and other systems for people who uh, need, who interact with uh, all of those systems and need them to work better together to either afford bad outcomes like reentry into jails and prison or, or poor health outcomes. Um, and that we know that stable housing has a huge impact on that. Yeah, I mean, our work together is, is very reflective of the type of collaboration that we think is necessary to bring about the change that we wanna see and the center is doing so much great work um, around that. And before we get into the discussion about racial equity through the campaign and what we're doing, I think um, another aspect to really kind of lay down that foundation is really talking about the history, right? So we know that there has been a history of racist policies and practices that got us here. Um, like how redlining labeled black and brown communities as undesirable or hazardous, or how black veterans were denied the benefits of the GI Bill, which provided generous home loans and education benefits to white veterans. And so I think sometimes we take for granted how many people know about how we got here um, and, and what really what really tailored this, because it was it was actually a very intentional process. So can you speak a little bit about the history that impacts us today and why so many people may be unaware of this history? So I think you did a great job of explaining that and outlining some of the major pieces of the history. And I don't, in addition to taking it for granted, to take that, to just put a finer pen in that, I think we don't even talk about it and we talk about it as if we're, if it happened 100 200 years ago which it did but it also happened you know 50 years ago 30 years ago and today so it's not as if this is a past bygone history that we can read about in history books it's something that too many people still live with every day and that's that's the that's the piece is understanding that yes there is this history but it's never ended it's not like world war ii that happened um we can learn about it and it ended racism and housing policy is a is, is not just historical but is also present 
in our in our lives. And the way that we can tell that is some work that um, several researchers, um, like people at the Urban Institute here in Washington, D.C., that have looked at the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and overlapped that with historically redlined communities and found out that often the communities that are seeing the worst impacts of the COVID pandemic are also those same neighborhoods that were redlined uh, in the past. So that to me explains what you mentioned earlier, how the injustice of how zip code dictates health it's even worse than zip code. It's by neighborhood and uh, and the racist policies that we've had in place that still um, that still resonate with us today. Yeah, I mean that's such a great point. Just driving that pin about it being present because I think that sometimes you know if we do get if we go too back in time, sometimes it may seem like, you know, these things aren't happening still today. And we see so many disparities and you can literally draw a line throughout how we got here in history and why the conditions of today are the way that they are. And I think that that's, that's just so, so, so important. So, you know, I mean, honestly, sometimes I get frustrated with how much we don't know about history too. And I think that speaks to the educational system and our, our differences there. But I think in many ways, it also speaks to the way that the conversation of racial equity has shifted throughout our history, right? Like there, there has been points in our history where we, where we wanted to be kind of race neutral, not really address certain policies head on or have these conversations head on. And so I think that we are in a moment in, in, in time where we're talking about having these more racially centered conversations, right? And so solving the great injustices that come from the history of racial inequities is part of the work in the housing field. But I think that especially right now, the conversation is shifting towards this more racially centered framework. And so I would ask, you know, what does that look like in the campaign? And um, has the center moved towards this, this framework and its own work? And if so, how? And I think, too, to take a step back for, you know, this is a podcast, so people don't know that you and I are both uh, African-American women, and the role, the you know, trying to lean into the, as you mentioned, we had, we've had a history of trying to look for race-neutral policies, and we've also had a history of trying to have, of having the ideal be a society that's colorblind. And because of that, it's repressed people like us feeling comfortable telling our stories, being our authentic selves in spaces, um, and, and just bringing our whole selves into all aspects of our lives because we felt like we need to act like white people and act at, and, and operate and figure out how to operate in a white dominant culture. And I and that is, to me, what has changed and allowed us to have a different policy conversation is realizing, wait a second, I know why I've been so exhausted all these years. Yeah. It's because I have had to really think through every yeah. moment of every day how I'm going to enter into a space and what am I going to do and, and, and not having faith that people would accept the diversity of thought that I, and action and experience that I bring into a space. And to me, that's what is liberating, but in a way exhausting, because I, I, at least speaking for myself, have to relearn 
remember, figure out who am I and what, how am I going to enter in this space? Because I've spent so long not being able to do that. And that uh, opportunity is what is informing, I think, and driving our work now. The, the idea that we should be using the experiences that we've had and the, and the way and what we've seen through our lives to inform policy. And we're not trying to uh, bend policy to not actually um, address the uniqueness of the black and brown experience in this country. So, you know, so thinking about that, that's what is the conversation that we've started to have at the center is what, what is it that we need to understand better about the experience of brown and black people in this country and of white policymakers and the policies that we've created that have created the disparities uh, that exist and understanding that because policies have played a role in creating those disparities, we need to be looking for policy solutions that correct for them, that not just stop them, but correct the disparities, but is also recognizing that if progressive policies were already inherently doing this, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're, that we're in now. So there's some um, acceptance that, that we have failed in some way um, to make sure that we're doing better by black and brown people, that as, um, you know, as, a, as, as people who care about, uh, who say that we care about people with the lowest incomes and who say we care about um, ending racism, we haven't done the work. And so we've got to really think about how to transform policies so that, and, and analyze them appropriately to figure out what does this idea of anti-racist policy mean? Do we know what anti-racist policies are? And if, and, um, and let's tease out the ones that we think are a lot, that are at least moving in the right direction and be creative enough to think of new ways to approach policy so that um, we're, uh, uh, so that we're living out this new mantra of anti-racism. Yeah, I, everything that you just said, I think, you know, on so many levels, it just tackles how this kind of, this kind of weaves into so many aspects, right? You know, pointing out that, you know, we, we are um, Black women in this space and even shifting this conversation is also a conversation of like how we show up in our experiences and, and how we now address these issues as like, what are the new solutions? How can we rethink some of the things that have already been out there? What does it mean now that, that, that we have coined this term of anti-racist? What does that really mean when we're showing up and really addressing these, these issues head on? And how much it's so important to bring into the space the people who actually have the lived experience and have the stories and and the and and the ways that everything intersects and how it really plays out in their lives and and listening to those stories and not only listening but also making sure that there are leaders in the space that they are take they have some type of ownership on the things that actually like impact them themselves and the way that we communicate and work towards that racial equity and the stuff that we do as we are advocating for them. And I think that, you know, all those aspects are, are so important. And what I like about it shifting more 
to the to more like to a conversation that's more racially centered is that it's more intentional to me. And I think that if the policies and the practices were done with some intention to create what we have today, that we have to be very intentional with the way that we solve these issues and correct the things that have been done. So um, that also bleeds into talking about how this group was really created. So the racial equity group, as I mentioned, it started this year and it really started with a conversation that we had with the larger steering committee about the campaign, about the racial equity work that we were doing and what else we could be doing to truly elevate this work. And from that conversation, I think it was really clear that we can do better, um, that we had done some work. You know, we, of course, we did like the fact sheets. We were very intentional with the collaborations that we've had through the campaign, the way that we um, put a lot of information out on our website, things of that nature that we definitely have done the work. But um, I think that there was really a conversation about needing to be more intentional with the strategy that we were using to truly advance racial equity throughout all the work that we do. And when we had this conversation with all of our partners, I think that we also found that everyone was really having this conversation. It was happening in the sectors of food security, local government, criminal justice, LGBTQ rights, gender equity, education, health, really every sector um, and every one of our partners were really talking about how they themselves were really having this conversation within their own organization and how that really was changing or you know just bringing a different lens to the way that they were looking at every sector and so instead of treating racial equity as like this separate piece of the work i think we really wanted to weave it into all the work that we do so i would ask you what are some of the key takeaways you have from being part of the process informing our racial equity group and the work that we've done thus far one thing is to take a step back into a conversation actually that you weren't able to see and that was with um the leaders of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, uh, the founding partners, myself at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, Megan Sandell with uh, Children's Health Watch, Nan Roman at the National Alliance to End Homelessness, and your boss, Diane Yantel at the National Low Income Housing Coalition, the four of us having a conversation with the, our funders of the campaign, uh, where they were the ones that came to us and said that they were beginning to look for their grantees to do more with center and not just more, but really center race in their work. And that that was what they were looking for um, from their partners and pushing us to have a deeper conversation about race than we had had in the past. And I think that that's particularly important, not only for philanthropy, but for state governments, local governments, the federal government, understanding that money and budgets drive priorities. And you can see what an organization's priorities are by how they spend their money. And that was a driving piece for our philanthropic partners that then made us have a conversation with our, a deeper conversation with ourselves and then take it to the steering committee, which is where you and Mike uh, and the, and the, and the um, over 20 steering committee members came into play. And I think 
the big piece for us was a part of the conversation amongst the leaders was, well, we haven't talked to the steering committee about this. This is taking OSA's priorities in a new direction. We need to, you know, we can't do anything without them. And maybe this is something they don't want to do. So let's go ask them. And the overwhelming response, as you said, from the steering committee is like, oh, my goodness, we've been waiting for you to have this conversation. This conversation about race is what made all of us engage in housing because of the racism that happens in housing and the impact of segregation on child welfare, educational outcomes, um, social justice outcomes, health outcomes, all of that always brings them back to housing and they didn't know how to impact housing. And that's what made them ready to be a part of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. So it was a no brainer, really. It was us that was hesitant and slow to the table. But once we brought it up with our partners, we've been able to uh, really um, run with this mandate of figuring out how to help the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign center race in a way that, um, that could really make a big difference in our policies and policy recommendations coming in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think that that just doubles down on the, that it just really is a part of so much, right? That going into the racial injustice that you see in housing really has an impact on all these other systems and our partners, you know, recognizing that so clearly and wanting so much to have this very direct conversation about what we're going to do about this in the housing space because it has so many impacts way beyond housing itself. It literally contributes to all these other disparities and all these other systems. Um, it's just, it's like the driving tool. So it's it's like, just as you pointed out, again, I think it's, it, it's so having this conversation for our partners and bringing it to our group was, was really a no-brainer for the group, but also it really just shows just how those intersections really drive just impact just way, way beyond their own sectors alone. And so we started this conversation. We started to, to be more direct and we created this group. And one of the important aspects of starting these conversations that you actually pointed out during our first meeting was the importance of setting the norms and the values for our group. So things like confidentiality among us, seeing the space that we create as a safe space to have these genuine conversations, um, assuming that everyone is showing up with good intentions, respecting each other, seeking to understand the different perspectives that we have within the group, and so alongside all those norms and values, which I think really did lay a foundation for us to come and have these conversations because they are difficult conversations to have. And sometimes you need that foundation and that brain to really set the stage for us to have these genuine conversations. And so what are some important steps when starting these conversations, you think, about racial equity in organizations generally with those norms and values? And do you think that any of those are very specific to housing organizations. So I'll start with your second comment first. And I don't think that there are uh, specific norm, norms that are needed for housing organizations that would only apply to us because racism is so pervasive in our culture that it isn't just housing where it shows up. 
and it is such an overarching um, piece of our of of what uh, uh, of America that the things that make it difficult to talk about are pretty universal. I, in my opinion, so I think that's where to start out with is. You know, at the center, when we've started these conversations, the first thing is to understand that uh, first we actually have to build some trust amongst the group that's having the conversation. Uh, I I don't mean this to sound as crass as it might, but, you know, sometimes particularly white people assume that everybody trusts them. And that is not true. There are people who have had a wide variety of experiences that have had that have had racist and hurtful and traumatic things happen to them that automatically mean that they're they don't that trust is hard for them first of all two it's also really hard to not pay, when things are repeatedly done to you it is hard not to paint the whole group of people with the same brush and therefore um, it can create a situation where um, a diverse group of people can come to the room and there's an underlying distrust that mm-hmm. um, that can prevent things from moving forward. And it's important, so it's important for trust to be built on an individual level among the partners that are there. And that's what the norms are meant to do. The norms are meant to help everyone enter into the space with the same foundation. And, be, and as the norms are tested, that's what builds trust. So if I have an, if, if one, one of the norms is about giving people, uh, holding people in kindness and rigor, one of our is at the center. And that to me means being, um, being respectful of people, but also holding people accountable for what they may say. And once you test that out of knowing that maybe you say something that you're not sure is, um, is, 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 is sensitive of people's diversity. Um, and you're, you're a white person, you're trying to talk about race, but you just don't have the words and you're worried about saying the wrong thing. If you just, if you try this out and you say what you're thinking and you acknowledge that you you may not have the right words. And then the other people in the room show you grace and kindness in that and help explain to you how what you said was fine or what, what you said was problematic. And there's a conversation. Now you've built trust and now you've moved forward. So that's what I think the important step is, is first step is building trust and recognizing that people don't enter into the room with the same, with, with trust. Trust has to be built. Mm-hmm and taking the time to build that trust. Uh, The other piece is creating benchmarks for progress. Because of the difficult conversations, it can sometimes feel like we're getting nowhere. But if you do a good assessment of where you are when you start and then keep referring back to see how you're growing, it uh, uh, it can help the folks in the room understand that progress is being made even in times when um, when the group could face difficulty not moving forward. Yes, um, one thing I wanna point out that you said there was kind of how we all show up in a space very differently and the assumption that trust is kind of already there can 
can really create obstacles for us to have these genuine conversations. And so something that I would add, you know, if there is potential for this and something that I know that we are exploring um, in the greater um the greater view of the whole organization is, is training from people who are doing this racial equity work and come into organizations and actually train to have these conversations. Because I also find that it's just, it's, it's very difficult. It's, it's, you know, there's nothing comfortable about racism. And so confronting it, confronting racism head on is going to have these, you're going to have these uncomfortable um, layers that you have to pull apart from everyone's identity, from the ways that we all kind of like walk in this world and have to, you know, even in certain discussions, I know myself, I'm thinking like, can I say this? Should I say it this way? What's a way to say it that doesn't seem very, you know, like, like that, that doesn't come off as harsh. It could be all helpful to have a facilitator. And I think that it does just also goes back to establishing those norms and values that we just spoke of, just creating that foundation because we all are showing up in a different space and that these conversations are very difficult. So it's different places that we come from, different experiences that we bring and different identities that we're bringing to this table. Before even, you know, doing this work, I worked at testing services in New York State. And what I what I learned from that experience, sitting down and creating a question for folks, you know, we all are funneling it through our different like ways that we have perceptions of the world and our own identities that we don't even see the disparities there. So there were massive disparities in, in the testing. And when they actually brought in focus groups, people were able to say like culturally, this is what this means in my culture that you may you may have missed. This is what this means in my identity that you may have missed, you know, having created these questions. So it was really a lesson for me then about of, of creating like something as simple as like a survey or a questionnaire that we may create these identities in different ways that we show up. They really do have an impact in the way that we present ourselves in the world and things that we still have to deconstruct in our own minds of the way that, you know, we interact with each other. And so um, one of the initial tasks that we had through our racial equity group was looking at some statements that we have together. We have um, a vision, we have a mission, we have a long-term goal. And I think we wanted to make sure that we were communicating in those statements that advancing racial equity is a big part of housing justice. So how are we communicating that within those statements? And it took us a few months to complete. We actually thought that, oh, we were going to get this done in a month, but it actually took months of conversation because again, it goes back to how we're showing up in these in this group and these difficult conversations that we are having. So it took us a few months to get to a place where everyone was comfortable with the statements that we created. And we recently announced the changes. They're up on the website. We updated all of our communications around it. But I'll ask you, what are what are some things that you learned in that process? And what were some pers perspectives that really stuck out to you when we were having those conversations? One of the things that I learned was that while we were entering into the conversations, thinking about it as race equity, we needed to all we needed to figure out if that was all, the only equitable piece that we cared about. The only marginalized mm -hmm. uh, population we cared about were uh, were people of color, and or were we gonna go ahead and make sure we made room for um, other marginalized populations, especially um, gender especially folks who are marginalized because of their gender or um, the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, and that was an interesting conversation. I think it took us a couple of meetings to get through that because mm -hmm. our initial uh, mission and, and charge was to look at race equity. And so we had to have a conversation within the group about, uh, about, about how to make space for equity at large. Mm -hmm. So that was an interesting conversation. Um, I think, you know, what also raised up for me is that as a black woman in the housing space, that the room or, you know, the virtual room of us who are a part of the race equity work group is probably the most diverse group that I get to talk to on a regular basis. So that it was, um, you know, and, and, you know, that space is not a housing space. It was a space of all of our um, other systems partners. So it was interesting to that the level of diversity that exists out in the rest of the social services world that doesn't exist within the housing space. That really, that really resonated with me because of the conversation we were having. You know, there's conversation within the, amongst people of color about what is the right level you know, should we all be holding the burden of having these equity conversations? Um, and how does that work? But with this group, this is who volunteered to have the conversation and we all engaged in it with energy and it shows where you can get to when there are, div when, um, uh, when there are diverse energized voices at the table. Uh, and there's one, I think, exchange when uh, you and Mike were reporting back to the four of us leading organizations about just how, uh, how quickly we at least got comfortable with having and how rich the equity conversation was within the group. And it was me that pointed out, but yeah, Mike, that's because almost everyone in the group is a person of color. So we've been talking about this stuff for a long time. <laughs> And it was something I don't think that at least maybe Mike or even or the or the other founding partners had knew, right? That uh, that uh, how the what that room looked like. So that was another piece that stood out for me that it was it was really people of color and other marginalized groups having a seat at the table and driving the conversation, and and how and how when that happens you really get a much deeper conversation obviously because we're practiced at talking about these things um you know ever since i was a little kid we talked about mm -hmm. race at the dinner table but i don't know that white families have to do that yeah um and you know something that also stuck out to me just along with everything that you were saying too is just even the words that we use i think that there was a point where in in our previous drafts of it, we had vulnerable when we talked about a population and it was just like, should we use vulnerable? Is marginalized the right word? Is Are, are these words right? Or do they also kind of like talking about that anti-racist lens that we're trying to, you know, you know, really put things um, on? Is is that, is, does it really combat what we're trying to, to say here or, or does it have a different implication on, on groups? So I thought that was also very interesting too, just also just analyzing some of the words that we use because we think that those words are harmless. Um, there was just so much rich conversation that just happened, you know, in the beginning stages of just looking at those statements. So even just the words that we use can really just have such a, a different impact on the, the way that people see the work that we're doing. So that I thought that was a really, really great 
place to start for us as a group, because it also goes into that conversation that I think that we're having now too, and also that we had having, talking about the vision, the mission, and our goal is kind of dealing, confronting this idea that we've had for in the advocacy space for, for some decades, which is the belief that working on low-income issues is by extension doing racial equity work. So for a long time, advocacy groups have pushed more federal housing resources for households with low incomes. You often make the point that simply reorienting federal housing resources to households with extremely low incomes, it doesn't necessarily guarantee the elimination of racial inequities in housing. So could you explain a bit more what you mean by that? Well, it's a little bit about uh, about what I mentioned earlier, right? That because policies and practices are what have caused the racial disparities, it means that there is some intentionality that is going to be needed to reverse and correct for them. And that by in thinking that, well, just because having policies that impact low-income people universally should fix this. And that's not true because if that were true, we wouldn't be in this mess. We mm -hmm. did have um, you know, Medicaid. We have Medicaid now, and there are many states that have expanded Medicaid to based on income to a, a significant amount of people at who have the lowest incomes. But it doesn't mean that disparities by race don't still happen in those places, right? So it's, so Medicaid coverage and just blanketly making sure that low-income people have it has not corrected for health disparities um, uh, by race. So that right there shows us that we have to do something else. There's something, there's, we have to, yes, everyone needs Medicaid coverage, but there's something underlying that that is still preventing us. And if we don't address it with some intentionality, then we'll never uh, we'll never correct it. You know, it's, people often think that you know the racism and disparities happened by happenstance, and they and they did not. And so therefore, we've got to be very intentional about implementing policies and show some courage to implement policies and direct resources to communities of color. I, you know, we, this also plays out from, as in the ways that we talk about segregation and the, the way that we research the impacts of segregation. We don't talk about suburbs that are predominantly white as segregated suburbs, but we do talk about inner city neighborhoods that are predominantly black or brown as segregated communities. And that word segregation then layers on badness. And that, oh, well, because we have so many black people or brown people living next to each other, that's inherently bad. And that's, a, uh, uh, that's something that we have to disrupt. We have to disrupt this idea that because a place is majority black, it is inherently bad. We have to yeah. start to think about what has created the disparities and segregation. It isn't that black and brown people living together is inherently bad. It's that then that allows policymakers to very specifically not 
invest in those communities and neglect those communities that then create the bad outcomes that people experience. And so by flipping, because, and just to take it further to my own experience, the town that I grew up in, when I grew up, when I, when we moved there, when I was a two and a half, there were maybe six or seven black families there. When I was in middle school, it's when people, um, black people in particular, but, uh, but um, also Latinx and other people of color from Dallas started to move into our town. And what happened? A lot of the white people left because they buy into this narrative that, you know, oh, well, how many black people is too many black people before the bad things from segregation start to happen? Luckily, that town had a great mayor at a critical time that drove investment to the community. And as I said before, where I grew up is now majority black and majority people of color and is a thriving community uh, outside of Dallas. But it took a policymaker in the right place to drive investment into the community to show that just because a place is primarily people of color doesn't mean that it is inherently bad. And that is what, um, that is what I, I want to make sure we understand from uh, not only where we drive investment into low-income communities, but just what the overriding narrative is that we're creating if we think that just a blanket investment uh, will touch on people of color, it won't. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the points that you make, I mean, I we were having a recent conversation about just like, just the way we talk about like high opportunity neighborhoods, right? And low opportunity neighborhoods and what those, what the what the meaning behind those things are. And really, I think what we, what we really wanna shift this conversation to talking about is giving people the ability to choose where they live, right? Like people should be, you know, if they if, if their community is mostly black and black and brown, there there shouldn't be a connotation there that that is bad. Like you're like you just said that there that people should have a, a the ability to choose where they live, and those 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 choice shouldn't be limited by some system that is creating these, you know, limitations to their choice and, you know, creating disinvestment and and all these lack of opportunities within the, the neighborhoods that maybe they, they want to be in and, and stay in and claim. And so uh, there's just so much work in the way that we kind of have these discussions. And even though a lot of the things that we do talk about or policies that we do push really are based on income. I think that, you know, there's also the ways that, you know, in the campaign, we're starting to talk about how there still needs to be some intentionality in terms of really addressing racial equity issues. The income stuff can get to some of the, the issues, but if we're really talking about policies that are engineered to specifically address some of these other, you know, the other inequities that we talked about and specifically um, racial inequities, that it has to go beyond some of the things that we've we we've come to know now that the policies rethinking like we talked about before what those new policies would look like. And so I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the issues that are kind of outside of what we're working on in the racial equity working group. Um, the national conversation. Many of our listeners, they're familiar with the campaign and that we're um, focused on housing intersections with other sectors, one of which is criminal justice. 
Uh, we have several criminal justice organizations that are part of the campaign, including Just Leadership USA. They sit on our steering committee. And as a conversation, I think we're having this long overdue conversation about police brutality towards Black people in our country. And there is a direct link to housing and the criminal justice system. So I would ask you, how does housing impact criminal justice and how does that change the way we think about the work that we do? So I think there are two ways uh, that I can highlight exactly the impact of this. And one is the impact that um, the system has on people who are currently experiencing homelessness. And this really speaks to the conversation about resources and policing, right? We, are seeing, we see too often that police are the route to make sure we're investing in housing and mental health services and, you know, and limiting the need for police to engage in that event. Because too often when police engage in that event, it's not a therapeutic interaction, it can, it's a violent interaction. So that, so I don't want to forget, you know, our conversation has been a lot about housing, but I don't want to forget people who do not have a home and are living on the streets. And when it comes to, to policing, that is a key thing to remember and really highlights the, yeah. the shift or, it, it, or investment in resources that needs to happen in the support system. In the other, in the, in the housing world, Police play a big role in evictions, for example. Mm -hmm. um, too often it's, and there was a story in the paper yesterday, I think, about um, someone who was evicted, who shouldn't have been evicted because of the moratorium on evictions uh, nationally, but the police didn't know about the moratorium or that the, that the moratorium applied to this um, family and evicted them anyway. And eviction can be a very, is a very traumatic thing anyway. And having the police come to your door and put all of your stuff on the curb, it makes it that much, um, makes it that much worse. And we really need to think about the role of police in that instance. Then there's also um, the role that having interactions with the criminal justice system have on your ability to get a house or be housed or receive federal benefits. Too often, people exiting out of jails and prisons are not linked to housing and, and, and housing in their community. And that, uh, so if they go from jail back to the streets, the odds are very high that they're gonna end up back in jail. And there's just this endless cycle from jail to the streets uh, that happens that could be interrupted if we just gave someone um, housing assistance and help stabilize them so that then they could get any services and supports that they need. They'd have a, a place to sleep so they could go to work in the morning, things like that that aren't considered. You know, we talk about people being, you know, reforming themselves, so to speak, after jail and prison, but we don't give them any of the supports to be able to do that. And housing is. I think the most fundamental one of those supports that people need. Yeah, I agree. People to identify are easier for people to identify why it's important to tackle these inequities on a structural or organizational level. Like I'm seeing a lot of those conversations now, but you know, it also dawns on me that I think it's also important to talk about the more interpersonal level um, of all of this and how we treat each other, how we talk about each other, 
you know, there's a lot of ideas that kind of come from this very personal space that we've come to kind of put each other in these in these buckets. And so when it comes to the conversation of policing, a lot of times we hear that, you know, the police may have feared an, arm, an unarmed Black person or the old um, views of the welfare system and how Black women were attached to being like welfare queens or how we talk about those who, who do not have a home, um, that they may have done something by themselves to get them there and they need to pull themselves up. And so there's like all these ideas um, that we have of people that kind of really impacts um, the way that we that these structures or organizational levels of oppression kind of exist and persist in our in our society. I would ask you, how has this moment shifted the ways that you communicate with people and navigate your relationship with others, you know, in, in more of the interpersonal space? It's given me more freedom to say exactly what I think and be as direct about what I think as possible. Because that to me, I feel is the failing that I have had in my life. And I think that people of color um, have had is obviously, to me at least, we had because we've been taught to be polite and not say anything. And because, you know, there's a role that we all play in feeding into this culture that we don't even realize because it's so um, pervasive. And so it's made me be more um, attuned to how I'm feeling in the moment, what thoughts are bubbling up for me, and having more courage to say what I think, even if it's not a fully formed thought, because being able to say something in the moment that something's happening makes it clear to even deniers of how these things show up that they are showing up. Uh, and that can sometimes be uh, scary. And as I've said a few times uh, in this conversation, exhausting. I think it, for me, it is the thing, because I'm in so many white spaces in particular, is important for me to speak up so that the people around can see what it, what's happening and the challenges that we face. Uh, so for example, in my team meetings at work, we lead our team meetings with an equity sharing where because we're centering race in our work, I have an equity say, but also recognizing that now, you know, we, we do need to be more direct. I think the directness is necessary and these tough conversations aren't necessary but with being uncomfortable because it is going to be. And so in terms of the campaign, I'd like to know um, what are you excited about in this moment and what are some major challenges that you see for us ahead? Well, I'm most excited that we have been able to hold this race equity group together through staffing changes and COVID and everything, which shows that there's a true commitment to this, to not just uh, the campaign, but the race equity work and to doing better in the housing space, that I'm, that's exciting. I think in terms of major challenges ahead, the election, we're recording this just you know a little less than 40 days before the election. And that is gonna be the major challenge ahead. If President Trump wins, where the challenge for this group is gonna be to maintain our energy to defend affordable housing programs. And particularly in a race equity context, 
still push communities to analyze how they're doing in giving uh, and making sure that there's fair access to housing because the administration has engaged in a lot of tactics that are undermining the Fair Housing Act. Uh, so maintaining that the energy, the defensive strategies that we've had over the last few years will be will be tough. And then if Vice President Biden wins, there are huge opportunities that's going to be happening. It could uh, it could mean that the progressive community is so busy that they can't participate in a side project like housing policy when they're the ACLU or when they're the National Education Association or because they've got so many things that they're moving in their own uh, agendas that are sent core to their work. So that's going to be, you know, making sure making sure that we have a strong foundation that housing is truly integrated into all of our cross system partners work is will be really important if uh, if Vice President Biden wins. I would say that I think I think that that's one of the really benefits to having a campaign like the one that we, that we have that we're on that we're working on is that there there is room to be very intentional about bringing these voices together. Like it it be it becomes the foundation where people can come together and all these different groups to have these conversations and it's a way to really make those conversations intentional. And I'm I'm, I'm excited because I think that what what people are saying now and what I think what's getting through to us as a nation is that things do have to change. Like there has to be change. And I think that that in and of itself is just creating this different energy, this different excitement um, that maybe we, we haven't seen before that will really get us to where we need to go. Because I, I think the push um, forward and I think that, like you said, the election is going to have an impact, you know, either way on how, on how, you know, the actions after and, and what goes on after the election. Um, but I think that what will remain is this very, this persistent feeling in people's spirits and their hearts about what really needs to change in this country. And so that that is what I'm excited for, but also acknowledging that we have so much to do, so much work ahead of us, and we're still just trying to peel apart all the layers in which these things show up. And it takes it, it takes a different amount of um, of energy and a different level of exhaustion because I think that it's it's so much based in showing up every day with the intention of really doing this work within everything that we do. And so in terms of the nation and given all the things that's happening in this moment, um, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic about the direction that we're headed both generally and in the context of achieving racial justice? You know, it's, well, one, I am definitely energized by you and the energy that you can hear in your voice about where we need to go and what we need to wake up every day with and coming to the, and coming to the table. I think right now where I'm finding my optimism is in my, uh, my black uh, friends and, and peers and the people I see marching on the streets on TV, you know, to see, to that is where my optimism comes because if we are energized, regardless of what happens in the election, what regardless of what issues we have to confront um, in the future, if we're energized and actively engaged and feel like we're a part of this country and should be heard and our voices should be heard, then I'm optimistic about what's gonna happen. It's when we get passive 
and accept things as the way they are and don't force change that I get down and and a little pessimistic. So even though the things that have brought us out onto the streets are tragic, um, I am encouraged that we're out on the streets. And I got just got a, my shirt came in the mail yesterday of, with the John Lewis make uh, make yes, good trouble yeah. my good trouble T-shirt, yeah. and I wish I could wear it every day because that is what energizes me is the number of people who are willing to make good trouble. Yeah, yeah, and for me, I, I mean, it's a balance. It's definitely a balance for me as well. Um, kind of what you just said of, I overwhelming. I, I think that this this time is has been a lot of different like just even an emotional roller coaster of like where we are, where we're going, how is it going to be? Like, what is the future looking like? There's all these questions, but the energy that I see present in so many people, so many black people, um, it's, it's just, it's so, I mean, it's, it's hard to just not have that optimism in your spirit because I, again, I think that so many people are just really wanting to see that change. But I think that is also very healthy to have that level of, of, the, the pessimistic side as well, because we've seen, you know, so much of, you know, our efforts sometimes um, still kind of get squashed or, or not taken the direction that we want it to take. So I think that that's a healthy level, given what we know in the, in the historical context of it all. But it's just great to see just how much energy that we are putting forth now. And just, again, I, I really think that there is a, a, a energy out there that really wants to see something different. And so I thank you so much because a lot of this conversation, I think, you know, resonates with so many people and will actually maybe get a lot of organizations who haven't started, or maybe they think that they need certain tools to start. Maybe it will get them to start really talking about racial equity within their organizations, getting people together to really have these genuine conversations and recognizing that it, it really is a part of so many of the sectors that we that we care about, we think about, like every single one, you can have that conversation because it is present and there. And so um, I thank you so much for joining me in this podcast today and just so much for your perspective. So much, so much of the feedback that you give to our racial equity group is just so important. And so I thank you so much for joining me today in this podcast. Thanks, Chantel. It was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll see you guys in the next episode, maybe. Maybe it'll be Mike or maybe it'll be me. I'm not sure, but Thank you so much for our listeners and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Bye.